Bond. James Bond. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. The 12th of August, 1964, marked the passing of a British writer whose legacy included the sales of over 100 million books and spawned a film series which has grossed over $5 billion since 1962 and continues on today. You probably know quite a bit about the central character of which I speak, British MI6 agent James Bond, but little about the writer Ian Fleming, English author, journalist, and naval intelligence officer. This is his story. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our Heroes series is titled, The Man Who Created 007. And it's true, Agent 007, created by author Ian Fleming, as portrayed by Sean Connery and others, is the third largest box office hero in history. The agents who risk their lives in intelligence roles around the world are the real unsung heroes. But 007 combines all of their best into a great, fictional hero. Ian Fleming was born on May 28, 1908, in the wealthy London district of Mayfair. His mother was Evelyn St. Croix Rose, and his father was Valentine Fleming, who was killed by German shelling on the Western Front in 1917. Winston Churchill, who had fought with him, wrote an obituary that appeared in the Times. Fleming's elder brother Peter became a travel writer and married actress Celia Johnson. Peter served with the Grenadier Guards during the Second World War and became involved in behind-the-lines operations in Norway and Greece during the war. Fleming greatly admired his older brother, who served as one of the many inspirations for his stories. In 1921, Fleming enrolled at Eton College. Although not a high achiever academically, he excelled at athletics and held the title of Victor Ludorum, winner of the Games, for two years between 1925 and 1927. He also edited a school magazine, The Wyvern. His lifestyle at Eton brought him into conflict with his housemaster, E.V. Slater, who disapproved of Fleming's attitude, his hair oil, his ownership of a car, and his relations with women. Slater persuaded Fleming's mother to remove him from Eton a term early for a crammer course to gain entry to the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. He spent less than a year at Sandhurst. Showing much more interest in women than studies, Fleming was sent by his mother, who had connections and was trying to gain entry for him into diplomatic circles, to Tenerhof in Kitzbühel, Austria, a small private school run by Alban Ernan Forbes Dennis, a former British diplomat who, according to Andrew Lysette in his book Ian Fleming, had been working undercover as a passport control officer but was actually the MI6 head of station with responsibility for Austria, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. John Pearson, in his book The Life of Ian Fleming, said that in 1960, Fleming wrote to Dennis's wife and partner in the school, novelist Phyllis Bottom, My life with you both is one of my most cherished memories, and heaven knows where I should be today without earning. It was at their school in Austria that he improved upon his language and skiing skills, and most likely acquired an interest in the field of intelligence. He then went to Munich University and then University of Geneva. After applying for foreign office unsuccessfully, his mother again lobbied for him and got him a job as a journalist for Reuters in Moscow. Later, he finally bowed to family pressure and tried returning home for a career in banking and stock brokerage sales, which were his family's primary source of wealth. But that wasn't keeping him interested. According to IanFleming.com, the official website for all things Fleming, 
He himself admitted that he was the world's worst stockbroker, but amused himself with the hedonistic life of a young bachelor. Women found him attractive, and he had many girlfriends. He sped off with his friends at weekends to play golf at Sandwich in Kent or to gamble at Le Toquet and other places. He liked nothing better than a game of bridge with companions at one of the established London men's clubs. The job for which he was first discreetly sounded out in May of 1939 was therefore most unexpected. This was for the post of personal assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence. This was to transform his life and ultimately, it could be argued, have a considerable effect on British culture. In 1939, he was recruited by Rear Admiral John Godfrey, Director at Naval Intelligence for the Royal Navy, to be Godfrey's personal assistant, giving the code name 17F and assigned to Room 39 at the Admiralty. As a part of this appointment, he joined the Royal Navy Reserve, where he soon was promoted to Lieutenant Commander. Godfrey needed a liaison to work with various sections of the government's wartime apparatus, including the Secret Intelligence Service, the Political Warfare Executive, the Special Operations Executive, the Joint Intelligence Committee, and the Prime Minister's staff. Fleming worked tirelessly throughout the war and was involved with the work of every section of naval intelligence. As one of the key members of NID-17, he played a pivotal role in coordinating special intelligence to ensure the smooth running of the British and Allied war machine. Fleming's energetic personality and imagination and keen organizational skills were valuable attributes. He attended countless committees where he contributed to the work of the political warfare executive. Fleming's distinctive literary style can be recognized in the daily situation reports and regular draft memos he wrote. He is also credited with building a long list of civilian contacts outside Whitehall on which the intelligent machine came to rely. It is now known that he liaised between the Admiralty and Bletchley Park, the top-secret code-breaking institution in Buckinghamshire, going so far as to contribute ideas for ways of retrieving the German top-secret decoding machine and code known as Enigma. Fleming's war work took him on official trips overseas. In 1941 and 42, he and Godfrey made confidential missions to the U.S. to report back on U.S. intelligence organizations and to coordinate them with those in the U.K., their work with William Stevenson, the legendary Intrepid, and Wild Bill Donovan contributed to the establishment of the office known as the OSS that was to go on to become the CIA. Fleming's work also took him to France, Spain, and North Africa, where he visited British embassies and nurtured Operation Goldeneye, a plan to provide for the defense of Gibraltar should the Germans try to invade through Spain. He also traveled as a representative of NID to Ceylon, Jamaica, and Australia, and to conferences in Cairo and Tehran. In 1942, Fleming formed a special intelligence commando unit named 30 Assault Unit, the 30 AU, the purpose of which was to seize enemy documents from previously targeted headquarters. The unit, which eventually became 150 strong, was trained in unarmed combat, safe cracking, and lock picking. Most of their operations took place in the Mediterranean, and the unit became a valuable asset for intelligence. Fleming directed this unit until December of 1944, at which time he was posted to an intelligence fact-finding trip to the Far East on behalf of the Director of Naval Intelligence. Here he identified opportunities for the 30 AU in the Pacific until the Japanese surrender in 1945. During this time, Fleming also provided input for the establishment of a target force, or T-force, whose job it was to secure documents, persons, equipment, with combat and intelligence personnel after capture of large towns and ports in liberated and enemy territory. This group secured nuclear labs, 
gas research centers and individual rocket scientists and discovered the research center for the V-2 rocket, the Messerschmitt ME-163 fighters, and high-speed U-boats. When Fleming's wartime duties were over, he became a writer for the London Daily Times and turned to journalism. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. So began Casino Royale, the first adventure of James Bond, completed in March 1952 and published the following year. Ian Fleming was 43. Although he had the experience of journalism, this was his first attempt at writing a book. He sent it to his friend, the poet William Plumer, who in turn recommended it to publishers Jonathan Cape. 4,750 copies were sold within a month, reviews were favorable, and a British cultural hero was born. Live and Let Die followed the next year, 1954, Moonraker in 1955, and thereafter a Bond title a year was published until Ian Fleming's death in 1964. Fleming maintained his job at the Sunday Times where he was foreign manager. He would ask the foreign correspondents such as Anthony Terry in Berlin for help with details about, for example, trains or local geography. He contributed a chapter on foreign news to the Kelmsley Manual of Journalism. From 1953 to 1956, he wrote the Atticus column in the Sunday Times, chronicling a range of obscure incidents, interesting facts, and mild gossip. Following the end of his military service, keeping true to his promise made at the end of the war to return to Jamaica, he built a modest bungalow in the beautiful location on the North Shore and named it Goldeneye. Somehow he persuaded his employers to allow him two months a year off to go to Jamaica, and so it was there in January and February every year, starting in 1952, that he wrote his novels. Fleming had first mentioned to friends during the war that he wanted to write a spy novel, an ambition he achieved within two months with Casino Royale. He started writing the book at Goldeneye on the 17th of February, 1952, gaining inspiration from his own experiences and imagination. He claimed afterwards that he wrote the novel to distract himself from his forthcoming wedding to the pregnant Charteris and called the work his dreadful oafish opus. His manuscript was typed in London by Joan Howe, mother of travel writer Rory McLean, and Fleming's red-haired secretary at the Times, on whom the character Miss Moneypenny was partially based. Claire Blanchard, a former girlfriend, advised him not to publish the book, or at least to do so under a pseudonym. But Fleming's brother Peter, whose books they managed, persuaded the company to publish it. On the 13th of April, 1953, Casino Royale was released in the UK in hardcover, with a cover designed by Fleming. It was a success, and three print runs were needed to cope with the demand. The novel centers on the exploits of James Bond, an officer in the Secret Intelligence Service, commonly known as MI6, Military Intelligence Section 6. Bond was also known by his code number 007 and was a commander in the Royal Naval Reserve. Fleming took the name for his character from that of the American ornithologist James Bond, an expert on Caribbean birds and author of the definitive field guide Birds of the West Indies. Fleming, himself a keen bird watcher, had a copy of Bond's guide and later told the ornithologist's wife that this brief, unromantic, Anglo-Saxon and yet very masculine name was just what I needed and so a second James Bond was born. Fleming based his creation on individuals he met during his time in the Naval Intelligence Division and admitted that Bond was a compound of all those secret agents and commando types I met during the war. Among those types were his brother Peter, and who had been involved in behind-the-lines operations in Norway and Greece during the war. Fleming envisaged that Bond would resemble the composer, singer, and actor Hoagy Carmichael, although others, such as author and historian Ben McIntyre, identify aspects of Fleming's own looks in his description of Bond. 
General references in the novels describe Bond as having dark, rather cruel good looks. Fleming also modeled aspects of Bond on Conrad O'Brien French, a spy whom Fleming had met while skiing in Kitzbühel in the 1930s. Patrick Dalzel Job, who served with distinction in the 30 AU during the war, and Bill Biffy Dunderdale, station head of MI6 in Paris, who wore cufflinks and handmade suits and was chauffeured around Paris in a Rolls Royce. Sir Fitzroy MacLean was another possible model for Bond, based on his wartime work behind enemy lines in the Balkans, as was the MI6 double agent Dusan Popov. Fleming also endowed Bond with many of his own traits, including the same golf handicap, his taste for scrambled eggs, his love of gambling, and use of the same brand of toiletries. After the publication of Casino Royale, Fleming used his annual holiday at his house in Jamaica to write another Bond story. Twelve Bond novels and two short story collections were published between 1953 and 1966. The last two, The Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy in the Living Daylights, posthumously. Much of the background to the stories came from Fleming's previous work in the Naval Intelligence Division or from events he knew of from the Cold War. The plot of From Russia with Love uses a fictional Soviet Spector decoding machine as a lure to trap Bond. The Spector had its roots in the wartime German Enigma machine. The novel's plot device of spies on the Orient Express was based on the story of Eugene Karp, the U.S. naval attaché and intelligence officer based in Budapest, who took the Orient Express from Budapest to Paris in February of 1950, carrying passengers from blown U.S. spy networks in the Eastern Bloc. Soviet assassins already on the train drugged the conductor, and Karp's body was found shortly afterwards in a railway tunnel south of Salzburg. Many of the names used in the Bond works came from the people Fleming knew. Scaramanga, the principal villain in The Man with the Golden Gun, was named after a fellow Eton schoolboy with whom Fleming fought. Goldfinger, from the eponymous novel, was named after British architect Erno Goldfinger, whose work Fleming abhorred. Sir Hugo Drax, the antagonist of Moonraker, was named after Fleming's acquaintance, Admiral Sir Reginald Almer Erie Drax. Drax's assistant, Krebs, bears the same name as Hitler's last chief of staff, and one of the villains from Diamonds Are Forever. Boofy Kid was named after one of Fleming's close friends and a relative of his wife, Arthur Gore, 8th Earl of Iran, known as Boofy, to his friends. Fleming's first work of nonfiction, The Diamond Smugglers, was published in 1957 and was partly based on background research for his fourth Bond novel, Diamonds Are Forever. Much of that material had appeared in the Sunday Times and was based on Fleming's interviews with John Collard, a member of the International Diamond Security Organization who had previously worked in MI5. The book received mixed reviews in the UK and the US. His fifth novel, From Russia with Love, published in 1957, is generally recognized as a turning point in Fleming's literary career. With its authoritative glimpse into the world of Soviet espionage and showing a more rounded James Bond, as well as being immensely exciting, it found favor with readers and with critics alike. The villain, Rosa Klebb, is gloriously described. The thinning orange hair scraped back to the tight, obscene bun. The shiny yellow-brown eyes that stared so coldly at General G through the sharp-edged squares of glass. The wedge of thickly powdered, large-poured nose. The wet trap of a mouth that went on opening and shutting as if it were operated by wires under the chin. Sales of the books rose steadily, but with Dr. No, the critics turned on him and accused Ian of sadism and snobbery. At the same time, others were beginning to recognize what an extraordinary talent he possessed, and fellow novelist Raymond Chandler urged him to try his hand at something more ambitious. This, he claimed, he had no desire to do, being content to keep within his entertaining formula. 
However, for whatever reason, his tenth novel, The Spy Who Loved Me, did mark an attempt to vary the formula. The story is told in the first person by a woman, Vivian Mitchell, and James Bond does not enter the book until some considerable way through. The fans were upset. The book was not well received, and Fleming returned to his previous structure. It remains an unusual book within the canon, but reads well after 50 years. There were two enormous boosts to the sale of the books and to Fleming's fame. The first came in 1961 when President Kennedy included From Russia with Love in his top 10 favorite books in Life magazine. Sales rocketed. Then in 1962, the first James Bond film, Dr. No, was released, starring the unknown Sean Connery. Sadly, Fleming was already ill with heart disease. He had had his first major heart attack in 1962, and while convalescing from that, having been told not to work, he wrote by hand a story for his young son, Casper. Fleming only lived to see two Bond films, Dr. No and From Russia with Love. He had seen some of the filming of Goldfinger in 1964. Two books were published posthumously, making 14 Bond titles in all. In addition, Fleming wrote two nonfiction books. Thrilling Cities was a collection of travel pieces that he had written for the Sunday Times, and The Diamond Smugglers was an account of the diamond trade. The Bond novels have remained in print ever since and have sold all over the world. Fleming has proved to be a master storyteller with a clear, elegant writing style and strong descriptive powers, particularly when writing of lands and cities and of cars and trains. Though often mocked in its day, his way of writing has proved extraordinarily influential. In a 1962 article entitled How to Write a Thriller, Fleming wrote, There's only one recipe for a bestseller. You have to get the reader to turn over the page. And that he achieved. He was one of the first writers to mention makes of watches, types of carburetor, marks of champagne, adding to the realism of his stories. His impact on thriller writing cannot be overstated. On the Bond movie side, seven actors have played Bond in 25 films. Fleming portrayed Bond as a tall, athletic, handsome secret agent in his 30s or 40s. He had several vices, including drinking, smoking, gambling, automobiles, and women. He's an exceptional marksman and skilled in unarmed combat, skiing, swimming, and golf. While Bond kills without hesitation or regret, he usually kills only when carrying out orders, while acting in self-defense, and occasionally as revenge. American actor Barry Nelson was the first to portray Bond on screen in a 1954 television adaptation of Casino Royale. In 1961, Eon Productions began work on Dr. No, an adaptation of the novel of the same name. The result was a film that began a series of 23 films that celebrated their 50th anniversary in 2012. After considering the likes of refined English actors such as Cary Grant and David Niven, the producers cast Sean Connery as Bond in the film. Fleming was appalled at the selection of the uncouth 31-year-old Scottish actor, considering him to be the antithesis of his character. However, Connery's physical prowess and sexual magnetism in the role came to be closely identified with the character, with Fleming ultimately changing his view on Connery and incorporating aspects of his portrayal into the book. Following Connery's portrayal, David Niven, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig have assumed the role in 25 feature film productions. Those screen versions have retained many traits from Fleming's depiction, although some of Bond's less fashionable attitudes have been dropped, such as racism, homophobia, retaining the services of a maid, and in the more recent films, smoking. Despite playing the same character, there have been notable differences among the portrayals. Daniel Craig is the incumbent Bond in the long-running Eon series, Although James Bond is in his mid to late 30s, he does not age in Fleming's stories. Fleming biographer Andrew Lysett noted that, 
Within the first few pages of Casino Royale, Ian had introduced most of Bond's idiosyncrasies and trademarks, which included his looks, his Bentley, and his smoking and drinking habits. Bond's penchant for alcohol runs throughout the series of books, and he smokes up to 70 cigarettes a day. Sean Connery was the first actor to portray Bond on film in Dr. No in 1962. An amateur bodybuilder, he had come to the attention of the Bond film producers after several appearances in British films from the late 1950s. At a muscular 6'2", Fleming originally disapproved of his casting as James Bond, believing him to be an overgrown stuntman who lacked the finesse and elegance to play James Bond. He envisaged a suave actor such as David Niven playing the role. Producer Albert R. Broccoli, known to all as Cubby, disagreed with Fleming's view, later commenting, I wanted a ballsy guy, put a bit of veneer over that tough Scottish hide, and you got Fleming's Bond instead of all the mincing poofs we had applying for the job. Ian's choice of Connery was also based on his looks and sex appeal, an appeal that later would be echoed by Honor Blackman, who said, after appearing with Connery in Goldfinger, he was exceedingly handsome, virile, and sexy, and that really was the tenor of what the script was always trying to display. After Connery was chosen, director Terence Young took the actor to his tailor and hairdresser and introduced him to the high life, restaurants, casinos, and women of London. In the words of Bond writer Raymond Benson, Young educated the actor in the ways of being dapper, witty, and above all, cool. Connery's interpretation of the character differed considerably from Fleming's, being more promiscuous and cold-blooded than the literary version. Connery described Bond as a complete sensualist, senses highly tuned, awake to everything, quite amoral. I particularly like him because he thrives on conflict. Academic James Chapman observed that for Dr. No, Connery's interpretation of the character, although not complete, showed the actor should be credited with having established a new style of performance, a British screen hero in the manner of an American leading man. In his second film, From Russia With Love, Connery looked less nervous and edgy. He gave a relaxed, wry performance of subtle wit and style. Pfeiffer and Worrell noted that Connery personified James Bond with such perfection that even Ian Fleming admitted that it was difficult imagining anyone else in the part. Academic Jeremy Black agreed and declared that Connery made the role his own and created the Bond audience for the cinema. Black also observed that Connery gave the character a spare, pared-down character with inner bleakness along with style. Connery played Bond with the right mix of cool charisma, violence, and arrogance against which all others are still judged today. Raymond Benson perceived that Connery embodies a ruggedness and an intense screen presence that transcends any preconceived notions about the character. Benson also noted that Bond was witty, but contains an assured toughness that epitomizes the machismo male. Roger Moore agreed with Black and Benson, commenting that Sean was Bond. He created Bond. He embodied Bond. And because of Sean, Bond became an instantly recognizable character the world over. He was rough, tough, mean, and witty. He was a bloody good 007. However, despite his charm and virility, Connery was characteristically laconic in his delivery. Christopher Bray says of him that, in his single-minded, laconic, mocking, self-sufficient vanity, Connery's Bond was the epitome of 60s consumer culture. Interviewed by Oriana Falacci in 1965, Connery identified where he had altered the character for the films, saying, I said to the producers that the character had one defect. There was no humor about him. To get him accepted, they'd have to let me play him tongue-in-cheek so people could laugh. They agreed. And there you are. Today, Bond is accepted to such an extent that even philosophers take the trouble to analyze him. Even intellectuals enjoy defending him or attacking him. And even while they're laughing at him, people take him terribly seriously. 
Connery went on to add that Bond is important, this invincible Superman that every man would like to copy, that every woman would like to conquer, this dream we all have of survival. And then, one can't help liking him. After the pressures of five films in six years, Connery left the role after the 1967 film You Only Live Twice, saying, It became a terrible pressure, like living in a goldfish bowl. That was part of the reason I wanted to be finished with Bond. Also, I had become completely identified with it, and it became very wearing. After a hiatus of one film on Her Majesty's Secret Service in which George Lazenby played Bond, Connery returned to the role for Diamonds Are Forever after David Picker, the head of United Artists, made it clear that Connery was to be enticed back to the role and that money was no object. When approached about resuming the role of Bond, Connery demanded and received a fee of $1.25 million, 12.5% of the gross profits, and as further enticement, United Artists offered to back two films of his choice. His performance received mixed reviews, with Raymond Benson considering, Connery looks weary and bored, he is overweight, slow-moving, and doesn't seem to be trying to create a credible character. Despite that, Benson considers that Connery still radiates more screen presence than Roger Moore or George Lazenby. On the other hand, Pauline Kael said, Connery's James Bond is less lecherous than before and less foppish, and he's better this way. In the early 1980s, producer Jack Schwartzman moved ahead with a non-Eon Bond film, following the controversy over the 61 novel Thunderball and the subsequent long legal battle. The result was Never Say Never Again. Connery accepted an offer to play Bond once more, asking for and receiving a fee of $3 million, percentage of the profits, as well as casting director and script approval. The script has several references to Bond's advancing years, playing on Connery being 52 at the time of the filming. David Robinson, reviewing the film for The Times, considered that Connery is back, looking hardly a day older or thicker, and still outclassing every other exponent of the role in the good-natured throwaway with which he parries all the sex and violence on the way. In 2003, Bond, as portrayed by Connery, was selected as the third greatest hero in cinema history by the American Film Institute. Fleming was to write many more James Bond novels from his home in Jamaica, named Goldeneye, and one children's novel that also became a best-selling Disney movie. It was based upon a story it would tell his son Casper during bedtime. The novel was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, available at iTunes and all podcatcher sites at our website at 1001storiespodcast.com and at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Remember to share us with your friends so we can grow. Until next week, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Music.